that God is present in our lives and in this space and every space that we go into. God is present. He's where you are. You cannot go far enough or, or to a place that is dark enough that you have gotten an escape from being in God's presence. You cannot do it. Uh, you may experience God's presence differently at different seasons of its life, but it does not change the reality that God is with you in each and every moment. And, and, and the other thing that we need to realize is that our job as Christians, our vocation, our job description, is not to get baptized and then try and not cuss and swear and do things we're not supposed to do and just wait till Jesus comes back to just stay good enough till the end, right? That's not our job. Our job is if we realize that the whole story of the Bible is talking about how God can dwell with His people and create a place where His people can dwell with Him, then our job is to become the presence of God in the world. That the world will look at Christians and look at the church and say, that is God's presence in this time and in this place. That we become a way that the world experiences what God is up to. Uh, in his book, David Fitch, the book Faithful Presence, in which a lot of this kind of series uh, for me kind of took, began with, uh, one of the things he writes is this, this I contend is the way God works. This is the way God will change the world through Christ. His work will begin small in little places like this. And from there, it will expand to change the world on a larger scale. God's work is necessarily twofold. God first is present to the whole world, but God also chose to become present in and through a people locally. In essence, He completes His work in the world in the concrete lives and circumstances of a people through the real presence of Christ. And what he's saying is this, is that God is present to the whole world, but the way that he does it is through his people. And his people uh, have an address. His people are at 4301 Northwest 23rd. His people are at, insert your home address here. His people are at, insert your uh, work address or the address of the store where you do most of your shopping. Insert any of those addresses. Anywhere you go, God is being present to people in that place through you. If you let Him. If you let Him. So God's whole design about what's happening in, in Scripture and what continues to happen on the pages of our lives is that God is seeking to be present in the world in every moment and every way through His own presence, and He seeks to do it in a very specific and real way through the embodiment of a group of people saying, we are willing to be the body of Jesus and let the Spirit come into us, and we will become the presence of God for the world. A world that needs to know that God dwells in us and among us. And so you see passages like Jesus' last teaching in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, where he's giving what, what we call the Great Commission. The 11, 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And I want to take a little bit of an aside here, briefly. 
These are the disciples who saw him walk on water, feed the thousands, uh, the lame have walked, the blind have seen. Jesus was crucified and then resurrected on the third day. They've touched his, the holes in his hands, the, the wound in his side. They watched him eat the fish, and, and he's done all these things. And, and, and some of them doubted. Right. I say that to say this. If you're someone who in your faith journey sometimes doubts that Jesus did what he did and said what he said and is who he is, you're in good company. You're in good company. Some of the greatest heroes of faith throughout all time went through seasons of doubt, and it often strengthened their eventual faith. And it's okay to go through that. And the other thing I want you to know is this, is that these guys are the main witnesses that we have to the things that Jesus did. And sometimes because we're uh, 20th century people and we know things they didn't know, we assume they were gullible dummies that just believed everything and that they didn't actually apply a certain healthy amount of skepticism to the things they saw and the things Jesus claimed. And you need to know that they really wrestled with, is this guy who he says he was, says he is? And the answer for them ultimately was not only is he who he says he is, but is he worth dying for? And their answer over and over again was, yes, he is. And so I just want to offer that to you today. Um, But Jesus comes to them in this moment of, of them doubting and questioning who he is and what he's about. And he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus says, listen, uh, there is a change that has happened in my ministry. Jesus' ministry took place uh, in that region of Judea and and down into Jerusalem. And and it was really, at one point, Jesus says, I've come uh, to those who are the children of Abraham. I've not come to the whole world. I've come to uh, the Jews. But at this point, his mission has changed. Jesus says, as a result of my crucifixion and resurrection, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says, I'm in charge of the whole creation now. I'm in charge of all of it. The mission field has moved. It's not based in Jerusalem anymore. It's every corner of planet earth. All of the heavens and all of the earth is where God's mission now takes place. And it's a major transition point. It's a major movement in the story of God. And so Jesus has to tell the disciples, therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, listen, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the the Trinity, the God that is three in, in one, is now sending you. We're in charge of the whole world. The mission has changed. It's now global and inclusive of all people. But here's what you need to know, that as you go, I will always be with you. I'll always be with you. And for Matthew, this is a big deal. And you know it's a big deal because it comes up at the beginning of his book and it comes up right at the end of his book. 
Matthew chapter 1, uh, we're told that Mary's going to have a child and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of the surprising and incredible details uh, that we get at the very beginning of Matthew's story of the good news is this, that God is not there, God is with us. And He's with us in the form of His Son, Jesus, who's born in a manger. And, and, and He's with us in His birth, and He's with us right before He ascends. And He says, from now on, you can know for certain that I've got all the authority to do everything I need everywhere in the world, and I'm with you. Emmanuel, I am God with you. And what we see in the Great Commission is this, this two-part uh, moment where the worldwide mission of God and, and the incarnation of God's presence in this world come together in one place. In this space, we see the Father. We see God reigning over everything. We see Jesus being sent to us. We see the Spirit making the Son's presence real in our lives for anyone who is now in Jesus. All of those things are, are being described in this great commission. But the presence of God doesn't exist anymore like it used to at the temple, in the tabernacle, in a cloud or in a bush. The presence of God doesn't show up with an address in the way that it used to in the Old Testament. It's changing. What's happening henceforth from this time forward, is that the presence of God is going to go with His disciples. It's going to go with His people. That we become the place where the mission of God and the presence of God come together in our lives. If someone says, listen, I want to go and, and experience um, I want to go and experience God. If they say that 3,000 years ago, you say, well, here's where you need to go. You need to go to the temple. It's in Jerusalem. Take a pilgrimage there. Today, if someone says, I want to come to the presence of God, we tell them, go to church. But if you show up here on a Tuesday in this church building, uh, the presence of God isn't here differently than he's in the field. There's nothing about the architecture or the building or the space that includes the presence of God. But on Sunday morning, when this church family comes into this place, the presence of God is here because it's in us and among us. And that comes with responsibility, and it comes with a job description, and it comes with expectations that we are the arena of God's presence and mission in the world. So how do we practically do that? What does that, that mean if we have this job description that's rooted in the mission and presence of God being in us as we are in the world? How do we live that uh, in the church? How do we live that in our homes? How do we live that in the world? And so over the next coming weeks, we're going to be looking at, at seven different spiritual practices. Seven different ways that Christians uh, do things together to experience and to become the presence of God. And these are things that you in different ways do every day in some form or another at church, at home, and in the world. They're things that, uh, that are practices that are as old as the church and happen in communities and are part of the regular practice of Christian life. And here's the seven practices we're going to be looking at. So I'll just give you a table of contents moment, kind of looking forward at, at where we're going. 
Uh, Over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at the practice of coming around the Lord's table. Or the practice, when we call it, when we do it here in the auditorium, we call it the Lord's Supper or communion. How does doing that together as a people shape us? And then how do we find ways to invite people into a meal with God at home and at work? How do we do that everywhere? Because it's not just something that should happen at this address, but these are disciplines that we should be living in the world in a way that invites the world to come into God's presence, whether they are really looking for that or not. We're going to look at the practice of reconciliation. Uh, This is an important one. The practice of reconciliation uh, invites us to see where we've hurt others or others have hurt us, and we try and restore one another and relationship. Uh, Is that something we do at church? I hope so. Is it something we have to do at home and at work? You bet it is. Uh, Unless you live by yourself, you need to be doing reconciliation at home. You've got to be doing it. The practice of proclaiming the good news. Uh, In in so many ways, the world needs to hear the church say what the good news is. Unfortunately, in recent years, the church has developed evangelistic laryngitis. We're not good at declaring uh, and proclaiming the good news about the gospel anymore. And we need to reclaim that practice. Now, do we do it the same at church as we do at work? Probably not. We're going to have to think about how we do those things differently. We're going to look at the practice of being with the least of these. Is a phrase Jesus uses to talk about people who, who the world would look down on, but as Christians we're supposed to love and exalt and serve. What does it mean to spend time with the least of these? What does it mean to spend time with children? Uh, On several occasions, Jesus praises the faith of children and the inclusion of them in the kingdom as being part of what Christianity is all about and should be about. About using our spiritual gifts together. About being a group of people that realize that God has gifted every one of us with some gift that we're supposed to use for the building up of one another and the church and the kingdom. There's two things that get in the way of us doing that. There's probably a lot of things that get in the way of us doing that. One of them just being laziness and I don't want to. Um, But if you don't know your gifts, you're probably not going to use them well. And if you know them and you're not using them, we need to figure out what the obstacles are to you actually activating the gifts that God has given you and putting your talents to use so that God can produce a crop 30, 60, or 100 more what was planted. We need to figure that out and talk about that. We need to be looking uh, at kingdom prayer. We need to really be praying people in every sphere of our lives. And if we truly get in the habit of practicing these spiritual disciplines, not just by ourselves, but as a community of disciples, as a family of believers, what we're going to see is that these seven principles will touch on every part of life. There's not a part of life that won't be touched by one of these practices, whether it's eating, spending time together, having hope, getting through conflict, dealing with sickness or death, whether it's becoming leaders or who should be leaders and what that looks like, whether it's raising a family or just living with God on mission, these practices encompass all of life. They speak to us in everyday living and in all of the different places and spaces and contexts where our feet take us. We've got a way to partner with God and bring his presence into the world. 
These are intensely social practices. And, and they're things that are repeated. So you may notice there's some you know, Christian practices that aren't up there. Uh, baptism and marriage are Christian practices. They're not up there. Why? Well, because you don't keep getting married. It's the kind of thing you do once, and then you just kind of sort it out for the rest of your life. You don't keep getting baptized. That's the thing you do once. These items that we've mentioned uh, in the last slide, these are the items that we regularly do on an ongoing basis, and they continue to mold us and shape us uh, going forward in our lives. Uh, and they do it in community. You cannot do reconciliation by yourself. If you could, marriage would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? your spouse could come up to you and say, hey, we've got a problem. I've got to figure it out. And you say, don't worry about it. I already figured it out. I'm forgiven. That'd be great. But it's social. Lord's Supper would be easy if it was just a TV tray that you did by yourself. But the Lord's Supper is designed to bring us in a relationship with one another so that you're eating with people that you would not be eating with if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus did get out of the grave. There's a dealing with and a, a, a forbearing with people element to that meal and how we get together. These disciplines, if we practice them well, destroy the in here versus out there problem that so many Christians have in their lives. And the in here versus out here problem is this way of Christian living uh, where somebody lives one way at church and talks one way at church and then they go out in the world and they live completely differently. It, it invites us to say, hey, I want to be a person who experiences the presence of God at church, at home, at work, at the store, in the car, and who embodies the presence of Christ at church, at home, at work, in the, everywhere you go. You experience and embody the presence of Christ in every moment. But we don't do it the same in all contexts. And this is really important. Uh, there's a tendency to look at someone who behaves one way at church and another way at home and another way at work. What do we call someone that's uh, one way at church and another way in the world? Hypocrite. Poser. Someone that's two-faced, living two lives, right? And, and we want to be critical of that. But I think that, that there's some nuance here that we need to add to that. There's a level where it is healthy and helpful and missional to behave one way at church and another way when we're out there. Now, there's the old saying, um, let me read it because I get twisted in the words almost every time I try and do this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. There are people who come to church and glorify God with their lips and then go out into the world and actively live in ways that deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You cannot do that. You cannot be duplicitous in that way. You cannot say, hey, when I'm in God's presence at church, I've got to make sure because, you know, he's in the room. But when I'm out there and God's not watching, God, okay, come on now. You think God doesn't know what's going on in, in your life, in your home, in your work, in your car? God knows. He's there. 
to act like it's okay to do that denies that he is with you in all moments, and it denies that your mission exists in all the different contexts and spaces that God sends you. And you can't be actively doing that. But there are real differences between how we should practice our faith at church and home in the world. There are contextual differences, and there's a biblical way of thinking about this. And that's what I want to be inviting us to really begin considering as Christians in a world that is hostile at times to Christianity. Uh, Ryan, one time, uh, Ryan used to be the youth minister here. He's now a preacher in North Carolina. Um, He's been there for way longer than I realize Uh, But one of the times uh, when he was at a coffee shop and he was working here, he was visiting with someone, Um, which is one of the funny differences between Ryan and I. I go to a coffee shop to escape from people. He goes to coffee shops to engage with people. He's a psychopath. Um, (laughs) And and now I'll know if he listens to the sermon or not because he'll call and confront me about calling him a psychopath. But he's at a coffee shop and he's talking to someone uh, and this person says, hey, do you believe what some Christians believe about, and I don't remember what the topic was, but do you believe about what uh, the Bible says about this? And Ryan stopped for a second and he he says to this person, are you asking me to defend what I believe based on a book that you don't believe is true? Because it doesn't seem like that's going to be real productive. This person doesn't believe what the Bible says is true. And, and she wanted to come to Ryan and say, listen, I want you to defend what you believe about this book based on the book that I don't believe in. Well, that's nonsense. And yet that is, is actively what the church continues to do in so many different circumstances and contexts today. And it's not a new problem. Paul talks about the problem uh, in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, there's a problem with sexual immorality in the church in Corinth, and he's, he's talking to those uh, who, are, are church, uh, who are involved in the church in Corinth, and he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. And here's here's how he ends this, this section. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? The implied question there, by the way, is, Yes, we are supposed to judge those inside. Don't worry about those outside. Why? Paul writes and he tells us, here's why. God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. What Paul's saying is this. uh, To us, we live in a world today where it is very, very popular for Christians to spend all of their time judging and criticizing and critiquing the world and not really giving a hard look at what we need to do in our own lives and in our own church. And so we've talked about this over the past couple weeks, right? What do you need to do when you get mixed up about this? You draw a line around your two feet and you say, what's my responsibility? What's outside of the circle or what's in this circle? And you start with what's in this circle. And you say, God has put me in charge of everything in this circle, and God's going to take care of everything outside of that circle. 
Now, there's degrees of this, right? Because we also realize that if you're married and you have this one flesh relationship with someone else, uh, they are in some ways in your circle. And so Paul ends up writing in Ephesians that there's a responsibility for husband and wives to try and help each other uh, to grow in faith and to get uh, to heaven. And so there's an extent to where a husband and wife are in each other's kind of circle. And there's an extent that uh, your family is in your circle. You have a responsibility to try and get them to heaven and you focus on, on them as your people. And then for Paul here in the Corinthian letter, he's saying, listen, don't you understand that if you're in a church, uh, a community of believers with one another, there's a circle that goes around your church and you've got a responsibility to help each other get to heaven. You are supposed to worry about the people inside your church circle. And if one of them has an immorality issue that might cost them their soul and keep them from getting to where God desires them to be in the end, you have a responsibility to go to them and confront that in your circle. And Paul says, but, but hold on. Quit picking so many fights with people that are outside of your circle. We've got Christians all over the place today that are not really worried about what's going on in their circle, and they're running all over creation, telling other people how they need to change their behavior based on a book they don't believe in. Don't worry about people that aren't in the church. God's going to take care of them. God's big enough to take care of the whole world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. There's not a part of the earth that is not touched by God's mission and God's control and Jesus' reign. He's been sent to all of it. The Spirit is active and alive in all of it. He's got it. He's big enough. It's not your job to fix the world. Because Jesus is the one that died on a cross to save it. It's your job to figure out your circle. God will take care of the rest. We tend to judge the world while ignoring our own problems. But Paul says we, could deal, we should deal with our problems in our own life and in the body of believers. Stop worrying so much about the world. And yet, that doesn't mean that God's here and he's not out there. We fully recognize that God is present in the church, in our homes, in the world. There is no corner of this creation where God's presence does not go. And we have to remember that, that as his missionaries, as his disciples, as his representatives in the world, that there's not a part of the world where we aren't called to take the mission of God to that place and to that space, and to become the transforming presence of God. We become salt. We become light. The world becomes contagiously affected by us in the way that we are living. But we do it differently in different places, and here's why. If you are part of the kingdom of God, if you are a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you visibly see the kingdom of God in this moment. And yet you live in a world of people who will see it later, but don't see it yet. And so the way that we live the visible kingdom of God is different. And so when you're hanging out with other people that visibly uh, see the kingdom of God today, you behave one way. When you're with people who will see the kingdom of God someday, but they don't see it yet, you have to behave differently. Because they don't know and understand what's coming while you know it already is. And so we end up with this tension about how we 
live. And it's really not an issue about the reality of the presence of God. We know that God's presence is everywhere. It's an issue of timing. For us, the kingdom of God is already. For the world, uh, they don't know it, but it is coming, and they'll figure it out later. But until then, we've got a timing issue about how the kingdom of God should be lived out. Uh, David Fitch, in his book, Faithful Presence, gives a, a, an image that I think is helpful for thinking about the way that we live in the world and engage with people as the presence of God. And so, I don't know if you can see this, but, but you can kind of see the basic graphic here. The first circle where we experience God is the close circle. Not closed, like exclusive, like, hey, we're in the club and everyone else is out. Close circle. A group of people that are held close to one another by the fact that we're in a covenant relationship with God and a covenant relationship with one another as his people. The close circle is where you can most intensely experience the presence of Jesus in the world today. It's people who come together and say, we do believe in the same book, and so we can hold each other accountable. We can grow in the way that we dialogue through this. But the presence of God doesn't just stay in the closed circle because the presence of God is on the move. And so when we go home, we take the presence with us. But it's different at home. At home, there is still a group of believers who come together and say, we still belong to Jesus, and so we live a certain way. Uh, and yet, you live in, in what he calls the dotted circle. Because when you're in your neighborhood or when you're at home and your host and someone comes into your space, they have an opportunity to see how the presence of God dwells in your midst. They don't agree with it necessarily. They may think about it differently, but they see it in you when they are in your home. Leah and I talk a lot of times. We want people when they are in our home to say, your house is a place of peace. It's one of the ways that we want to embody the presence of God in our home. So when people come in, we may not do a sermon. Um, if you've ever wondered, do I preach at home? Occasionally, but not really. I mostly do this when I'm here on Sunday mornings. Because at home, we, we live the presence differently than we do at church. When people are around us, I want them to experience that whether we talk about it or not. That's the dotted circle. It's a space where people can come in uh, and, and the focus is on um, being present to them in a way that is meaningful. Uh, the dotted circle. And then the, the final circle is the, when we go into the world. When we go into the world, we go into the world as guests. And when you're guests, you don't go into the world and say, here's what we do, here's the way it works, is, you know, this is how it works. So think about it in terms of a prayer before your meal. When you are uh, at church, we pray before every meal here at, our, at Northwest. And when you're in your home, you may say, at our house, we pray before we eat. Or when we're at a restaurant and we're kind of host to our family, we're going to pray before I eat. But when you go to uh, work and you're about to have a meal, it's probably not common for you to stand up in your workplace and say, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed of you guys that you didn't pray before we ate. Why? Well, you know that you're guest in that context. If you're host in your house, even with your coworkers, you might say, hey, if you guys don't mind, I pray before I eat at my house. And they'll say, well, sure, you're host, that's fine. 
and so thinking about these different spheres helps us think about how we live as Christians in different spaces and in the presence of different people. When we're in the half circle, the question isn't, is Jesus present in this place? The question is, will he be welcomed here? And as his guest, uh, as guest of the world, we live differently in that space. We're going to keep getting into this as we move through the disciplines and the practices and, and how this works in different scriptural moments. Uh, Jesus does, different, does this in some ways. Paul does this in lots of ways. In fact, sometimes Paul says, this is what I'm doing. Um, we need to kind of recapture this. It's not hypocrisy to exist and to practice disciplines of faith differently in different contexts. But here's what really matters. If you get to where you're only focused on the close circle, which a lot of Christians have a tendency to do, you only focus on what happens when you're in the community of believers that are yours. Uh, if you do that and you ignore the others, you enter what's called maintenance mode. You become insular. You become uh, critical of the outside world. You become divisive against the world. You're not missional in any way. Uh, you get this real us versus them mentality. And yet on the other hand, if you're someone that focuses entirely on doing your Christian experience in the half circle of the world through mission and through uh, spending so much time with broken and sinful and lost people, and you don't take the time to go back into the close circle ever, you're going to enter exhaustion mode. In exhaustion mode, you're spending so much time with broken people and pouring into their lives that you're going to be depleted if you don't go back to God in the church and get refilled. Not only that, there's this real tendency, if you do mission all the time without coming back into the church, you start to think that you're going to be the one that fixes the problem, and you'll forget that it's God that's trying to fix the problem through you. So we've got to be living in all three of these spheres in meaningful ways that bring the presence of God into our lives so that we can become the presence of God in other people's lives without slipping into maintenance or exhaustion mode. All right, I've got to land the plane. And I don't really have a great transition. We're going to keep looking through this uh, in the coming weeks, really getting into, into particular practices. So next week, looking at how do we do the Lord's table here and what, why does it matter? How do we do it at home? How do we have meals with people in our homes that allow them to engage with the presence of Christ? How do we do meals in the world that allows people to engage with the presence of Christ? Uh, if you're here today and you need to respond to the gospel or if you have any other need, uh, come forward as we stand and sing.